0: I'm very pleased tonight to introduce our lecturer, Professor Daniel Burns. Uh, Professor Burns earned his bachelor's degree at Williams College and his PhD in political science at Boston College. He's a professor of politics at the University of Dallas. He's been a postdoctoral fellow at the Thomas Jefferson Center for the study of core texts and ideas at the University of Texas at Austin. And this year, he's conveniently and happily a research associate at the Catholic University of America. He's published scholarly articles on Augustine, Al Farabi, Locke, and others, and recently published contemporary pieces in the Washington Post and the New York Times. Uh, Tonight's lecture will be on Augustine and the foundations of Christian political thought. Please join me in welcoming Professor Daniel Burns. Thank you very much. I couldn't be more pleased to be here. This is my first time on this this beautiful campus of yours. Um, But I arrived at Boston College in 2007, instantly found myself surrounded by brilliant Johnnies, uh, and then felt like I spent my five years of grad school just trying to catch up with the education they had all gotten in college. Um, Giving a Friday night lecture is easily the greatest honor I've received as an academic, uh, which means I'm kind of conflicted about it, because. Uh, I thought this was what I was aiming for, like ten, fifteen years from now. So I figure it's all going to be downhill from here. I'm really, um, it's it's amazing to be here, and I'm very grateful to, to Dean McFarland and everybody for inviting me. My talk tonight is on Saint Augustine. I have no no actual stake in Augustine versus Augustine, but I, I, I first studied him with a bunch of a bunch of Englishmen, so I'm used to saying Augustine. My talk is on Saint Augustine, a, a man about whom everyone seems to have an opinion, and usually a strong one. I ran into two students on campus earlier. I asked them whether they'd be going to tonight's Friday night lecture. They said, what's it on again? I said, it's on St. Augustine's political thought. And I had barely finished the last syllable of the word Augustine uh, when one of the students said, no. (laughs) I said, well, I'll be sorry not to see you there. I'm giving it. And I walked out before they had a chance to. Uh, Augustine is often described as a Christian Platonist, which is a good starting point. It's clearly how he saw himself. That already may account for all the strong opinions, right? The words Christian and Platonist, each on their own, are sufficient to arouse enough strong opinions, so then you've put the two together and you have Augustine. Uh, His attitude towards Platonism is summarized in a couple lines from the very first book he published, just after his long and famous intellectual journey when he had finally resolved to accept Christian baptism. I quote, We are pushed toward learning by a twofold force, the force of authority and the force of reason. As to authority, I am certain that I will never depart in any way from that of Christ, I have found none stronger. But as to reason and her subtlest pursuits, for I am now moved by the impatient desire to apprehend what is true, not only by believing, but also by understanding. As to reason, then, I am confident that whatever does not conflict with our sacred writings, I will find for the time being among the Platonists. Close quote. Now, in Augustine's Confessions and many of his other writings, you can see how interested he was in Platonic or Neoplatonic metaphysics and its relationship to the teaching of the Bible. Tonight, I'll be speaking about a different aspect of St. Augustine's Platonism that, unfortunately, gets much less attention, but I think is at least as important if you want to understand the history of the West, and that is his Christian Platonism, not in matters of metaphysics, but in matters of politics, Augustine's political thought. I quote Joseph Ratzinger, on whom I'll have more to say later. After the sack of Rome by the Visigoths in 410 and under the threatening signs of impending decline, it was Augustine who integrated the Platonic and Roman traditions of political thought into a synthesis within the new framework of Christian faith and so formed the spiritual foundations on which Europe could be built, close quote. Augustine was the first great political thinker to come after the rise of Christianity. And he set the terms of debate in Western political thought for at least a 1,000 years after him, even to some extent to this day. No European political thinker from the fall of Rome until Machiavelli ever dared to say openly that he disagreed with Augustine. And even later on, liberal thinkers like Locke and Mill, who certainly did disagree with Augustine, still to some extent built on foundations that he had laid. These liberal thinkers presupposed and in fact radicalized some of Augustine's critiques of Platonic political thought. The phrase turning point gets overused these days, but I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Augustine's political thought, that is, Augustine's critical appropriation of Platonic political philosophy, represents one of the real turning points in Western intellectual history. Now when it comes to Augustine's Platonism, we have one big advantage over Augustine. We read Plato. There is no good evidence that Augustine had direct access to Plato's texts. On the other hand, Augustine had one big advantage over us. He had the complete works of Cicero, the great Roman student of the Platonic tradition, whose major works have come down to us only in fragments. Augustine considered Cicero a philosophic master. I would never be so arrogant, he says, he writes, as to compare myself to Cicero, in terms of industry, attentiveness, ingenuity, or learning. Most people today have a much lower regard for Cicero, which I think is completely unjustified, but I can't prove that here. I will just say, on political questions, at least, Cicero thought he had understood Plato's basic ideas and had reproduced them in his own writings. Augustine believed him, and so do I. I believe Cicero in part from my own experience of reading him, in part also from reading Augustine, who, as you'll see in a second, had certainly managed to absorb a lot of Platonic political ideas from somewhere. It's not crucial to my argument that that have been Cicero, but Cicero is the most likely culprit here. So let me now summarize Platonic political thought under three main headings. And in each case, I'll then say how Augustine appropriates political Platonism while also modifying it to adapt it to Christianity. And my three headings are first, the limits of politics, second, the importance of politics, and third, civil religion. First, the limits of politics. Here is what I understand to be a basically platonic account of the necessary imperfections of any political community. All political communities teach moral lessons to their citizens, primarily through the law courts. Every legal proceeding claims to be just. It claims we're punishing someone only because he deserves it for having done something wrong. And so the law effectively teaches people what right and wrong are. The law of any functioning political community teaches rules that tell people not to be mean to each other. Don't steal, don't defraud, don't kill, and so on. The law also teaches important exceptions to these rules. It permits and even commands people, at least on the battlefield, to be quite mean to the enemies of their community. Do kill them, do trick them, do take their possessions, and so on. The law teaches people to be nice to friends and mean to enemies. Enemies here being understood as the enemies of the community as a whole. That community as a whole is defined at first glance by its legal code, but even more fundamentally, it's defined by its regime or constitution. That is by whoever it might be that exercises the highest authority in the community, the authority that lays down the law, that interprets the law, and ultimately can change the law. The regime or constitution can be categorized as ruled by one, ruled by a few, or ruled by many, but at least as important as the number of rulers is the question of whether those rulers actually deserve their rule. A just constitution gives power to people who deserve it, and just laws serve a just constitution. The justice of a constitution has to be judged by a standard that's higher than any human law, a kind of higher law which the tradition after Plato had called natural right or natural law, or even divine right or divine law. According to this higher law, whatever exactly you want to call it, People deserve to hold power only if they know how to exercise it well. And so political rule, the highest authority in a regime, deserves to be given to those who know how to direct our common human affairs. That is prudent people, or knowers of human things. But knowledge of human things requires self-knowledge, and self-knowledge requires knowing how human beings fit into the cosmos. And so prudence can't be separated from wisdom, wisdom being knowledge of the whole or of divine things. The only fully just political regime would therefore be a regime that gave the highest authority only to the wise, to the knowers of things, human and divine. In every other regime, laws suffer from a terrible flaw. They always serve an unjust distribution of power in which unwise rulers force us to do things we shouldn't be forced to do. Unfortunately, the rule of the wise is not easy to come by. The wisest people we have contact with are the lovers of wisdom who have made some progress in wisdom. There are very few of them, therefore rule by them will be either a monarchy or a very small oligarchy. The wise will need help from a whole bunch of unwise people carrying heavy weapons. And in order to educate unwise people carrying heavy weapons such that they're willing to listen to the commands of wise people, it seems you have to require all sorts of crazy things, from co-ed naked jumping jacks, to brother-sister incest, to taking all the good parts out of Homer. Plato describes these things in his Republic, and he famously punts in that text on on the question of whether this city is actually even humanly possible. Every one of Plato's greatest students, from Theophrastus and Aristotle up through Cicero, we've lost most of these authors, but Cicero had read them. He tells us they all had the same basic view of politics. All of them appear to have interpreted the Republic as teaching that really would be absolutely impossible. Not just unlikely, but impossible. There is no way for the few wise to ever rule the many unwise. Therefore, all human laws will always contain some element of injustice. All earthly cities will fall short of their highest goals. Every city will be a cave that teaches falsehoods about both human and divine things. Human law or right will always fall short of natural law or divine right, and no political reform will ever change that fact. In light of these necessities of politics, natural or divine right teaches us, at least as a rule, to obey the laws of our own imperfect cities, because in a world of unwise people, the practical alternative to the rule of law is not the rule of the wise, but lawless chaos and the rule of the stronger. Thus far the Platonists, what does Augustine say to all this? Augustine agrees with everything I just said. In fact, I hope it sounded sufficiently Platonic. I actually took it all from texts of Augustine's. I had to add the part about the jumping jacks and so on um, because Augustine hadn't read the Republic, and and Cicero's Republic is written on the premise that Plato's Republic is utterly impossible. So other than that one point about Plato's Republic, every other Platonic statement that I just uttered, I found them in Augustine. But Augustine has to reformulate Plato in light of what he regards as two important facts about Christianity. The first is that Christianity is true. That means there is, in fact, a higher and eternal city is a bit of a metaphor, but a kind of city which is ruled by wisdom and by truth. Unlike Plato's city, it's real. It exists fully in heaven, and it is revealed on Earth through the activity of the Christian church. On the other hand, no earthly city will ever actually be the church. And on Earth, even the church remains very far from the perfection of the heavenly city. So everything Plato said, about the imperfection of earthly cities remains perfectly valid and true and should be expressed in terms of the distinction between the earthly city and the heavenly city. The Christian distinction between the two cities is however politically relevant to a degree that Platonism never quite was because Christianity publicly demands converts in a way that Platonism never did. Platonism was always a bit ambivalent about its own critique of the city and the city's gods. Augustine enjoys poking fun at these educated Roman Platonists who would very solemnly preside over the public auguries, and then go home and write philosophic books about how auguries are a bunch of superstitious drivel that nobody should believe in, and then go back to the public auguries and hope that nobody there had been reading their books. Christianity attacks this apparent schizophrenia of pre-Christian Platonism. Christianity says to everyone, not just a few students of philosophy, that the earthly city is not man's ultimate home. For this reason, Augustine becomes the first philosopher of what we could call limited government, in a sense that's not quite the same as what we mean by that term today, but not entirely different from it either. Augustine thinks the city itself needs to admit that the city is not the ultimate authority on human and divine things. Augustine takes Plato's view of the intrinsic limitations of any city and demands for the first time in Western history that cities themselves should accept that view. No political community had ever called itself Platonist, but plenty have called themselves Christian. And a Christian political community has to at least try to acknowledge that its law is not God's law and never can be. That's the point that I was saying will get taken over and radicalized by later liberal thinkers. So for Augustine, as I was saying, there's one fact about Christianity, it's true. There's a second fact about Christianity, it's spreading. In spreading, Christianity has taught a lot of people about the imperfection of human laws and done so far more explicitly than any Platonist ever did. There is clearly a kind of kinship between Platonism and the Christian teaching here. Socrates did die as something like a martyr to an imperfect human law. But Socrates at least claimed with some plausibility that he was innocent as charged under that law. And he accepted his death out of obedience to the law in part to avoid encouraging others to disobey the law. Contrast the early Christian martyrs who proudly proclaimed they were guilty under the law which said to worship the emperor, they said the law is wrong. And they accepted their death in the hope of encouraging even more disobedience to the same law So Cicero and Plato had whispered things that Christianity now shouts from the housetops. Augustine has noticed, and he's quite worried about this, that when you popularize the idea that human laws are imperfect, as true as it is, you run the serious risk of encouraging lawlessness in some people and a kind of dangerously apolitical moralism in others. As a teacher of Christianity, Augustine tries his best to mitigate these risks by teaching the following. The earthly city is governed by temporal laws which regulate temporal goods money, honors, building permits, family relations, even earthly life. Citizens of the heavenly city know that these earthly goods are ultimately unimportant in light of eternity. So, if you're willing to break a temporal law in order to achieve some earthly good, it's probably a sign you're not really a citizen of the heavenly city. Citizens of the heavenly city should be too busy concentrating on loving God and loving neighbor to be interested in breaking temporal laws. They make use of temporal goods, but they also accept losing temporal goods when they have to, and so they follow the temporal law in pretty much all cases where it's not commanding an explicit act of impiety, like worshiping the emperor. That teaching that I just summarized is obviously incomplete, and it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. In particular, it doesn't say, what someone should do under egregiously bad laws that sanction unusually flagrant levels of injustice even if they don't command explicit acts of impiety in augustine's defense though that's a pretty hard question plato didn't really answer it either what we can say for sure is plato sorry what we can say for sure is that like plato augustine encourages law abidingness despite or rather because of the necessary imperfection of all human laws. Unlike Plato, Augustine has to make an explicit exception to this rule by saying, we have to disobey any laws that forbid Christian worship. And so if anything, in order to mitigate potential Christian confusions, Augustine's even more emphatic about the need to obey earthly laws in all or nearly all other cases. And whether it really is all or just nearly all is a question he never answers directly. That much on the limits of politics. Onto my second heading, the importance of politics. Here is the Platonist view on the importance of politics. Despite all the necessary imperfections of the city, the city performs indispensable functions for human life, which means that some cities perform those functions better and others do worse. There are no simply just laws, but some laws are much better than others. Good laws, for one thing, promote concord and harmony among the citizens. They maintain peace through a general agreement about private property and other rights. This agreement prevents people within the city from devouring each other like wolves, and so it is essential to our well-being as social animals. Law is also important to our well-being as rational animals who as such seek to live virtuously. No law can fully promote the true understanding of human virtue. But laws can certainly do a better or worse job of encouraging virtue and deterring vice. They inevitably shape the moral character of those who live under them, laws do, because our natural default position as people who've been brought up under a halfway decent legal system is to trust the moral lessons that our political community has taught us through its written and unwritten laws. The laws shape us mainly by shaping our habits, And habits only get you so far because virtue in the full sense has to be grounded on self-knowledge. You have to know not only what to do but why you're doing it. The law can't give you self-knowledge. You have to seek it for yourself. But if merely habitual or ethical virtue isn't virtue in the full sense, it is nonetheless a big step in the right direction because good habits can do a lot to rein in your vices and those vices tend to derail the search for self-knowledge before it even gets started. Your comment about iPhones goes here. So good laws support our development in our twofold nature as social and rational animals. They direct us towards social peace and individual virtue, always imperfectly, but they can do it better or worse. If they aimed only at social peace, then there would be a strong case to be made for monarchy over against other regimes, just on grounds of its efficiency, as you see quite clearly in Hobbes. But in fact, the Platonic tradition prefers Republican government, with at most a monarchic element limited to either a ceremonial figurehead or an elected executive. One reason for this is that citizenship, in the full sense, active participation in political affairs, is an important way to develop ethical virtue. You care more about doing the right thing when you can win public honor by doing it. And you think more about how you ought to act when you're responsible for people other than yourself. Moreover, in the few best cases, this need to think about how you ought to act will even drive some young people toward a more comprehensive reflection on human excellence and therefore toward true self-knowledge. And so social and political ambition, the kind that you find in republics much more than in monarchies, is a sign by which one can recognize promising potential students of philosophy. Thus far, Platonism. What does Augustine say to all this? I did it again. All of those Platonic-sounding statements are in fact ideas that I found in Augustine. With the exception of the bit about monarchy, Augustine lived under a decadent empire, and he refrained from attacking monarchy, although he does quietly indicate the superiority of republicanism. As to all of the rest of those statements, some of them are even clearer in Augustine than they are in his Platonic predecessors. The absolute necessity of temporal laws to protect earthly peace. For example, it's stated in the Platonists, it's beaten to death in Augustine. Again, because Christianity risks undermining people's obedience to their earthly laws, Augustine really feels the need to drive this one home to Christians. Without laws, it is not long before we all start killing each other. There's this wonderful letter of Augustine's to a a high-level, or about a high-level Roman general named Boniface, whose army has been deployed to North Africa to defend against the barbarians. And Boniface is thinking about quitting the military to join a monastery. Augustine and his best friend are both bishops at this point. They're always trying to recruit guys for their monasteries. But the two of them go out to Boniface, they sit him down, and they say, look, you want to live like a monk? That's great. Be celibate. Sell your earthly possessions. Live simply. Pray regularly. Wonderful. Do all that while remaining a general. God does not want you to go into a monastery right now. Because if the barbarians invade, there aren't going to be any monasteries left for you or anybody else to go into. We need earthly peace. We are busy serving our people as bishops. You are busy serving our people as a general. Neither of these is a very fun job, to be quite honest. But both are necessary. Do not abandon your post right now. He succeeds. The guy stays a general. Barbarians end up invading anyways. But anyways. The point about peace is very clear in Augustine. Other aspects of the Platonic view about the importance of law are in there, but much harder to find. In particular, the idea that law provides a moral education to citizens. I'm in a minority of Augustine scholars who see that that Augustine thinks this. I have sympathy for the people who miss it, because he really is pretty quiet about it. But it is in there. Augustine really does think that all human beings, including Christians, have a strong natural tendency to take for granted the moral lessons taught by their political community. Christians kind of know they're not supposed to be doing this. And yet they do it all the time. John Stuart Mill pointed this out rather angrily, how Christians are always claiming to get their morality from the Bible, but you know, look at them. For the most part, they're all just taking for granted the moral lessons of whatever community they were raised in. To that, Augustine would say, yeah, no kidding. You think you're the first person to notice this? Try being the guy who has to preach against the sexual double standard to a bunch of Roman men. He says this in a homily, actually. He says, you all know the pur- sorry, you all know the New Testament is perfectly clear that adultery is equally a sin for husbands and for wives, and yet many of my own Christian wives in this, in this congregation believe it's not really a sin for their husbands to cheat on them. You know why they think that? He says it's because we've all seen plenty of wives get taken to court for being caught in bed with one of their servants, and no one has yet take, seen a single husband taken to court for being caught in bed with one of his servant girls. Perverse human custom comes to be observed as law, he says, even by Christians." So there, and in a few other places, Augustine does indicate that human laws have a moral educative function, for better and for worse, even for Christians. He never discusses it as extensively as Plato does, and I think there's some evidence he's worried that it can be rather disorienting for many Christians to think, start thinking suddenly, about how much they've been taking their moral bearings from the earthly city when they're supposed to be aiming at the heavenly city. But whatever the reason, he is quieter about the moral educative function of law. The good news is that if instead of saying the laws should foster ethical virtue as much as possible, you just say the laws should punish the wicked and restrain vices wherever possible, which is what Augustine does say, then you end up with nearly the same practical effect. After all, the the main way that laws do foster ethical virtue is through punishing the wicked and restraining vices. And even Plato would have agreed That law-bred ethical virtue is merely a restraint on vices rather than virtue in the full sense. But Plato didn't hit people over the head with that to the degree that Augustine did. Augustine's greater openness about the limits of politics can sometimes be in tension with the Platonic goal of encouraging the higher functions of politics. You see this, for example, in Augustine's treatment of honor. His view of honor is pretty well the Platonic view, Love of honor is is reasonable only insofar as honor from good judges can confirm your own progress and virtue. Anything beyond that, love of honor is a vice. But it can be a great motivator for people to restrain lots of their other vices for the sake of honor, and love of honor is the animating principle of the Republican regime that is the best regime we can hope for on this earth, what Plato called a Timocracy with a T. The thing is, though, This platonic view of honor, you can convey it in a way that leaves room for high-minded young people to maintain their natural love of honor without throwing your book across the room. That's what Cicero manages to do. Or you can just be much clearer and more emphatic in simply condemning all the petty worldly honors that are pursued in any city. That's what Augustine does. His honesty about the limits of politics does come with a real trade-off, namely that his political thought has a certain tendency to encourage stable and peaceful kingships over against feistier, more patriotic, honor-loving republics. That's a trade-off that men like Machiavelli and Rousseau would famously gripe about centuries later, although one would have to ask whether they offer an adequate alternative. But that much on the importance of politics. On the importance of politics, excuse me. My third heading is civil religion. Platonism offers the following view of the role of religion in the city. Politics can and should encourage religion just as it can and should encourage virtue and for similar reasons. In light of our natural concern with mortality and with our place in the cosmos, it's not possible for human beings, either as individuals or as communities, to be simply indifferent to or agnostic on cosmological or theological questions. We can't help having opinions about them And when we live and act in common together, we will necessarily be acting on some opinions that we share about the divine. As we've seen in all cases, the city's opinions about the divine will be unwise and therefore to some extent false. But some false opinions are more false and more dangerous than others. It is a matter of concern to the city that the common opinions about the divine be as good and true as possible. The law should therefore be concerned not merely with forming ethical virtue through rewards and punishments that govern external behavior, but also with forming citizens' interior opinions, opinions on questions that take us beyond life in the city and indeed beyond human life simply. Politics cannot be concerned only with the things that politics actually does. Politics has to look up to something beyond politics. It has to shape its citizens' relations to the divine. It has to regulate religion. In regulating religion, politics pursues a twofold goal, which corresponds again to our twofold nature as rational and social animals. As social animals, we need our city to teach a religion that helps scare people away from committing crimes. We need religion to strengthen the bonds of our families and communities. And we need religion to consecrate certain important political obligations that will never be strong enough if they have to rely only on human enforcement mechanisms. The obligation to bear true witness in court the obligation to keep treaties with foreigners, our obligations to show compassion to strangers and asylum seekers. That's as social animals. As rational animals, we need our city to to teach a religion that drives us to pursue interior moral purity, which only a god can perceive, instead of trying to cover over our vices with empty ritual observances. And we need a religion whose teachings about the cosmos at least point us toward the truth, the truth being that the cosmos is in fact ruled by a divine mind, which bears some real resemblance to the human mind. That awareness will help save us from the errors of materialistic philosophers whose views tend to undermine both moral and intellectual virtue, since they are prone to that unphilosophic combination of despair and arrogance, which comes from believing your own mind is the smartest thing in the universe. Thus far, the Platonists. That last line straight from Cicero, by the way. What does Augustine think of all this? Again, he agrees with all these statements, if taken as statements about why the earthly city, even the earthly city, cannot and should not be indifferent to heavenly questions. Despite everything he says about the gap between the two cities, Augustine also says countless times that the earthly city can and should promote the right kind of religion to the extent that it can. Augustine has no qualms about writing to patriotic non-Christian Romans defending the political utility of Christianity as a civil religion. Roman patriots of his day were attacking Christianity on precisely these grounds. They said it didn't serve the political common good as religion ought to. And among Augustine's many responses to this criticism, the most famous is the following, quote, As for those who say that the doctrine of Christ is harmful to the commonwealth, Let them give us an army of soldiers, such as the doctrine of Christ commands them to be. Let them give us such subjects, such husbands, such wives, such parents, such children, such employers, such employees, such kings, such judges, such taxpayers and tax collectors, as the doctrine of Christ commands them to be, and then let them dare to say that this is harmful to the commonwealth. Indeed, let them not hesitate to confess that if it were obeyed, it would be greatly beneficial to the commonwealth. Augustine also loves to point out that anyone could do much better by imitating Cato or Regulus or any of those old Roman heroes than by imitating the gods whom these great men supposedly looked up to. The pagans go into their temples and hear sacred stories of adultery, infanticide, parricide, theft, fraud, unjust conquest among the gods themselves. The Christians, he says, go to church every week and hear healthy moral lessons adapted to every age and state in human life. Spouses get taught love, respect, and fidelity, Children, parents, siblings, and relatives get taught to stay united in love and affection. Employees are taught diligence and respect. Employers are taught responsibility and humility. Kings and subjects are taught their mutual duties. Hostile nations are reminded of the universal brotherhood of mankind. And everyone is told to act with charity towards all and injury towards none. The last one's a direct quote from Augustine, long before Lincoln. So Augustine certainly thinks that Christianity does at least as much for our social life as any pagan civil religion ever did. And when it comes to individual virtue, of course, he also thinks that Christianity does encourage interior moral purity and does lead us toward the divine mind that is the true source of the cosmos. Nonetheless, civil religion is probably the one area of politics where he diverges most from the Platonists in substance and not just in emphasis. The issue between them is that the Platonists didn't believe that the teachings of any religion could actually be true. At most, religion could give you poetic images of the truth or pedagogically useful myths that point towards the truth. The truth is reached through philosophy and demands a certain ironic detachment from religion as such. This, for Augustine, is perhaps the most important difference between pre-Christian Platonism and his own Christian Platonism. I quote again from Augustine, "'We reject all those men who neither philosophize in their religion nor are religious in their philosophy. And he says that includes the Platonists. He never again wants humans to draw a line between piety on the one side and the concern for truth on the other. Now, since the earthly city remains the earthly city, if we demand truth in religion, we will have to say that a purely or merely civil religion, a religion that we adhere to just because it's the religion of our ancestors and our civil authorities, Will never again be an option in Christian countries. That horse has left the barn. No amount of social consensus, obviously, can make something true or false, and Christians insist that their religion needs to be true. So Augustine's view of civil religion is instead the following The true religious community, the Catholic Church, as he calls it, is transpolitical and encompasses people from many different cities and nations. Those cities and nations, each of those cities and nations will on its own never be the true church, but each of them has an obligation to show favor and deference to the church. At a minimum, they should leave the church alone, leave her free to perform her task of leading human beings to God. If the civil authorities refuse to leave the church alone, Christians have to accept martyrdom for as long as it takes until the civil authorities figure out that they're not going to go away. But civil authorities ought to leave the church free, And where they can manage to do so without doing more harm than good, they should also actively support the church, either financially or in any other way. That's Augustine's view. This Augustinian reworking of Platonic civil religion is exposed to three potential problems that Platonic civil religion never quite had to deal with. Augustine is aware of them. He tries to deal with them as best he can. And the early liberal thinkers, over a 1,000 years later, saw pretty much the same problems and tried to deal with them in some radically new ways. The first of these problems is that when the government tries in its ham handed way to help out the church, it can end up corrupting her, which ends up being bad for church and state alike. Augustine thinks it's really up to church officials to just keep an eye on that danger and to refuse any offered political help when it turns out not to be really help. You might say to that, well, how's that supposed to work if the church officials themselves are the ones being corrupted by the government? I think to that, Augustine would say, yeah, that's a problem. It was a problem for pagan priests, too. Humans with power will always be tempted to abuse it. At least with Christianity, we still have the gospel, which offers a pretty clear standard by which to judge a corrupt priest or bishop. The second problem is that Christian civil religion can produce more political regulation of theological doctrines, more heresy laws, in other words, than you ever found in the ancient world. This is true, and as I'll mention in a moment, it was a problem that Augustine struggled with in his own day. He seems to have accepted it as an inevitable trade-off. If you want your intellectuals to actually believe in their religion, unlike the Roman intellectuals, then your intellectuals will fight over theological questions, and that's going to have some spillover into your politics. There are problems with that. But on the other hand, there are also problems when your city's whole educated class has to clumsily lie to the common people every time they walk into a temple. The third problem with Christian civil religion is that the Christian concern with the truth of religion can lead to a higher degree of intolerance for false philosophies, particularly non-Christian philosophies, than was commonplace in the pagan world. There is no one, there is no one who would have been more upset than Augustine to see see so many of the pagan books that he loved so much getting burned or lost in the centuries after his death. He did his best to push back against Christian intolerance by always emphasizing in his many, many arguments with heretics and pagans alike that Christians, from the beginning of their religion, have always preferred to fight their opponents with eloquence and gentleness rather than violence and weapons, He also emphasized repeatedly that Christians always learn something important about their faith, both from the process of refuting errors and also from the real truths that are often contained within their opponent's arguments. To that, I would only add, intolerance isn't something that Christianity invented. If you read Plato's laws, for example, the attitude there towards false doctrines in the city is not exactly American First Amendment jurisprudence. But that concludes my three basic areas in which Augustine appropriates and to some extent modifies Platonic political thought. I would summarize Augustine's basic relation to Plato with a quotation from Leo Strauss, who was talking here about Maimonides and Averroes. I actually think this quote is more true of Augustine than it is of Averroes. Maimonides I leave to the sages. This quote is a perfect description of Augustine as I understand him. Quote, the attempt to understand the real revelation within the horizon of Platonic politics, necessitates modifications to the Platonic framework in light of the real revelation. The Platonic framework is thereby only modified, to some extent broadened, not exploded. This modification, as a modification, implies a certain critique of Plato, which derives its weight entirely from being able to appeal to the fact of revelation." Close quote. Now in the flyer I promised I would give some examples to illustrate Augustinian political thought as I've just finished outlining it, so let me do that. I'll give you a quick glance at how Augustinian principles have been applied to real political life in I think two different historical periods, Augustine's own lifetime and the modern West. I originally included a third historical period, the Christian Middle Ages, but I think for now I'm going to skip that in the interest of time. Augustine himself spent the second half of his life as a bishop In a Roman Empire, where Christianity had only just very recently become the official religion, paganism was still alive and well, and the Christian community itself was divided. In his own North Africa, the biggest division was between the officially officially recognized Catholics and a large schismatic group called the Donatists. The Catholic Church Augustine belonged to was a politically relevant social body. It preached, of course, the religion that the Empire had just officially adopted, It also operated a large network of essentially small claims arbitration courts. The bishop had to spend, including Augustine, had to spend a lot of his day adjudicating lawsuits between Christians, who for that reason didn't burden the secular legal system. Augustine accepted that his role as a bishop gave him a certain political legal status and he made full use of that status. He demanded that government officials should show respect for the church as a source of civic morality. He spent a lot of his time intervening in court cases on behalf of criminals, especially when the death penalty was in play. He always petitioned for clemency, and he argued to these judges that a member of his own, that a member of his own flock would deserve more of that clemency than the average criminal because the church's own extensive penitential, extensive penitential practices and, as we would call it, the church's social network gave criminals a much better chance of being rehabilitated once they left uh, if they were members of the church than if they weren't. Augustine maintained what he knew was a symbiotic relationship with the secular court system. He always insisted, civil peace requires legal punishments. He never questioned that. He knew that his pleas for clemency would not always be heeded. And he almost never advocated for any change in the criminal laws themselves. I know of one exception. He wrote to the governor once to say, the law against slave trading needs to be changed. The penalties on the books are so harsh that no one prosecutes slave traders. So it's running rampant mitigate the penalties, and then do a better job of enforcing them so we can be rid of this pestilence, he says. In general, as I said, he had a symbiotic relationship to the courts because he knew that judges themselves sometimes liked having an excuse to grant clemency. If they were just indulging a petition from this holy bishop, it wouldn't make them appear weak as it would if they had bent the law out of their own compassion for the criminal. So Augustine liked having the church, as we would say, always a little bit to the left of the state, on criminal justice issues, each one showing respect for the other, each one glad that the other was there. Augustine also had to deal with anti-heresy laws that were already on the books and became stronger in his lifetime without his consent. For years, he pleaded with the authorities not to enforce these laws. He said, we only want to combat heresy with the force of words and not the force of law. He did eventually change his mind on this, In part, that was because many groups of Donatists had started to engage in mob violence against Catholics. He wanted that done. He wanted that to be ended by force of law. That wasn't all. He also said he had learned something from experience. He used to think that anti-heresy laws would only produce insincere conversions, which do nobody any good. He had later gotten to know former Donatists who had converted out of fear of the laws and had then grown into sincere and loyal Catholics. So his general approach seems to have been Laws against heresy usually do more harm than good, but he is open to having them where and when they might do some good. I would add that under these laws, the penalties for heresy were fines, monetary fines. We are not talking about the Spanish Inquisition here. Augustine came to accept laws which confiscated Donatist properties and at most sent the ringleaders into exile. He never once accepted that anybody should be threatened with physical force on account of false religious beliefs. Whenever the authorities wanted to do that to Donatus, as they often did, he always begged them not to, and he said, if you do this, you are going to bring scandal on the Catholic Church. We don't believe that mutilating people's bodies is a good way to save their souls. Obviously, a few people in the Middle Ages didn't get the memo on that, but as I said, we're going to skip the Middle Ages for now and jump to today. I want to close today by talking a bit about the greatest living Augustinian, Joseph Ratzinger better known to the world as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Ratzinger is the author of the best book on Augustine written in the 20th century. He wrote it in nine months at the age of 24 while also finishing his studies for the priesthood in a country still being rebuilt from the ashes. Ratzinger was an academic theologian until, to his regret, he got made into a bishop and then a cardinal and then eventually pope. That was bad news for Augustine scholarship. It was good news for people who want to hear Augustinian ideas applied to modern controversies. Since, as a cardinal and a pope, He had to weigh in on some of those controversies. Ratzinger looks at our modern liberal democracies as an Augustinian. He sees that at their best, I don't need to tell anyone 2019 is not them at their best, but if you look at the best, post-war Europe, he says, or America as described by Tocqueville, you see regimes that do a pretty good job of achieving some basic Augustinian goals for politics. The church is free from political persecution on one hand, and from excessive entanglement in politics on the other. The state is free from inappropriate clerical interference, and it also recognizes the church's place of honor as a public guardian of mores. The church also performs valuable functions within the political society. In Augustine's time, that had had more to do with the judicial system. In the modern world, it has more to do with the nonprofit sector, schools, hospitals, soup kitchens, and so on. Each of these arrangements worked pretty well in its own context, and like Augustine in his day, Ratzinger sees the work that the church is doing in his own day, he approves of it, he defends it, and he helps carry it on himself. Ratzinger adds, however, a new observation. For some 400 years, he says, an intellectual movement has been building. And in recent decades, it has taken on newly aggressive forms in our public life. He calls it secularism. Secularism seeks to purge our public life of anything sacred or religiously grounded. Secularism is based on an understanding of human reason, which has roots in the writings of Francis Bacon and other philosophers, according to which, objective reality is what can be known through the modern scientific method. Any claims about the meaning and goal of human life, therefore, are inherently subjective and personal. They can't really be argued about or studied at university, and they certainly don't belong in our public life. After all, one thing we can all agree on is, laws should be based on objective realities. This view, Ratzinger says, is a degradation of human reason that really amputates our humanity. It produces all kinds of pathologies in our social and intellectual life, and in our politics, it produces secularism, which is an attempt by some modern Westerners to transform the entire West into the first and only human culture without religious roots. If this should succeed in our country, as Ratzinger says, We will not be the first countries to have cut their public life off from any religious roots. Some countries in the 20th century have very much managed to do that. But they have not been pleasant places to live. And at the end of this road, he says, our countries won't be either. Today's boosters of secularism are of course not consciously aiming for the gulag or the concentration camps. They tend themselves to have very nice cosmopolitan moral views. They have a habit of forgetting those moral views whenever they're offered a chance to do business in China. But nonetheless, they are somehow confident that we as a country will continue to hold our very nice moral views even without any anchoring in the biblical tradition that originally formed those views. They expect that we will continue to respect the rights of human beings even after we remove all public recognition for the creator who endows us with those rights, the God of the Old and New Testaments, the God with a human face." Having lived himself through most of the 20th century, Ratzinger regards this expectation as unpardonably naive. Secularism makes it impossible for the church to play the role in public life that Augustine thought it should. In the long run, secularism even threatens that minimal freedom of the church to just do its thing, since it's actually pretty easy to find secularist reasons why the church should be outright persecuted. For holding allegedly unscientific or retrograde moral views. Ratzinger's primary contribution as an Augustinian in modern political debates is to argue that Christians, and in fact all people of goodwill, should be resisting secularism tooth and nail wherever there's an opportunity. He says we should be defending our public symbols of recognition for our biblical heritage, whether it's the phrase under God in the Pledge of Allegiance or the Ten Commandments in courthouses, or whatever it has to be. His examples are European, but it's easy to see the parallels. He says we should be defending the study of theology at universities, not as sociology of religion, but as actual theology, a topic that needs to be debated, certainly, but in real respectful debate, with both sides open to learning from one another. We should especially, Ratzinger says, be fighting hard against the idea that religious opinions as such have no place in the public square. That's a battle to be fought within our political process, and even more so within our judicial system, where the secularists really love to hang out. Citizens and politicians, he says, have every right to bring to bear their own faith and the faith of their fellow citizens on the decisions they make in public life, as long as they don't try to make the earthly city into the heavenly city, which is an error that really no modern Westerners are even close to making. Ratzinger argues that in all these battles against secularism, Catholics like himself should be making common cause with Protestants and Orthodox Christians, with Jews, and with Muslims and others. Secularism is out to get all of us, he says, and we need to support one another's efforts to push back against it. That's striking, I think. At no point in Augustine's career do we ever see him making common cause with the Donatists about anything. But it's not that Ratzinger abandons Augustine's belief in the one true church. He just thinks that in these particular historical circumstances, the survival of his own Catholic Church will depend on finding non-Catholic allies against the secularism that equally menaces all of them. And so there you have two different examples of how Augustinian principles can be applied in very different political situations. Catholic Christians are an ascendant plurality in a decaying Roman Empire. I skipped the part where they are a dominant power in nominally Christian medieval Europe. And then today, an increasingly embattled minority in the post Christian West. Augustine's own intention was, I think, to lay down basic principles that could guide Christian citizens in a wide range of future circumstances, which he knew he couldn't foresee. And I have to say, in my own judgment, he did that awfully well. But I look forward to discussing that further after our coffee break. Thank you all very much for your attention.